This is the New England Journal of Medicine Coronavirus Update for March 3rd, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Executive Managing Editor, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. The number of cases of COVID-19 in the United States is continuing to rise, and that raises the question, what do clinicians need to know at this stage in order to treat those patients? Uh, Steve, I think that why the cases are rising in the U.S. has several reasons behind it. One is it's spreading globally. And in fact, over the last five, six days, more cases have been diagnosed outside of China than within China. And so this disease is spreading globally as one would anticipate a respiratory virus to do. In addition, as of last Thursday, Friday, the ability of multiple labs across the country to begin diagnosing this infection has been enabled through the EUA being moved forward, which is an FDA process to allow testing in different labs of not yet fully developed tests. By allowing testing to be done more broadly, we're able to better understand how this virus is transmitting If it is transmitting in this country, where it's transmitting, how it's transmitting, which has been an important deficit in our knowledge of who's infected. Based upon the data that I think will emerge over the next few weeks, we're likely to have a much better sense of where transmission is occurring, just as we've been watching what is unfolding in Northern California and Washington State, where testing is now being applied more generally to individuals who are not from higher risk parts of the world, evidence that local transmission is occurring. So the number of tests was quite small up to this point. And as you say, some of the obstacles have been removed and tests are are more widely available. What do you think the tested numbers are going to look like going forward? How many people? Well, just even looking at last week, up through last week, we had done under a thousand tests in this country. In South Korea alone, 15,000 tests per day were being done as they are trying to grapple with transmission going on within South Korea. So I think part of the challenge in the U.S. over the ensuing one to three weeks is standing up testing so we can test the large number of individuals who need to be tested because I think we need to be careful in determining what we think the disease phenotype is. In fact, from recently published data, significantly ill individuals, those who are getting admitted to the hospital with severe coronavirus illness, only half of them had fever at presentation, challenging how we think about individuals presenting with this illness. So I think we need to do tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of tests as quickly as possible to understand transmission in this country. Hopefully there's very little, but the concern is there may be a substantial amount given what we're seeing unfold on the West Coast. Lindsay, given the relative scarcity of tests, if you as a clinician are caring for a patient who you think could have coronavirus, what's the appropriate thing to do today? Well, I think what needs to happen in all 50 states and territories and at major medical centers is they need to rapidly determine how to stand up testing. And that should be the highest priority. And what clinicians need to know is in their locale, what are the testing procedures? And hopefully, as it's easier to test, we won't have to make difficult decisions about the sickest patients being tested first, because we're not going to be able to control this outbreak unless we know who is shedding virus, who's infected, even if they don't feel that sick. 
in the short term, it's going to depend on local testing capacity, starting at the state level and then extending, hopefully, to the major medical centers. I think that I'd add, Lindsay, that while coronavirus is on everyone's mind, there are still relatively few cases, at least as we speak today. And therefore, people presenting with pneumonia or what could be viral pneumonia are much more likely to have a different cause. So it's important not to jump to coronavirus immediately without looking for the usual causes, including influenza, which is very common right at this point. Well, Erica, I agree, except I don't think we know what the clinical disease phenotype is for coronavirus. And one needs to find a diagnosis in a patient who's infected, which may be a singular pathogen or multiple pathogens. And one may also have additional infections on top. One may have a viral infection followed by a bacterial or fungal infection. So one needs to do appropriate testing to define the illnesses our patients have. And of course, those patients who are sicker should get more testing to better delineate the illnesses they have so treatment can be targeted. So how to gauge how to scale up testing is in part related to testing capacity and the degree of illness of the patients are docs are taken care of? I think it's important to, for now, think about what the clinician who has a patient who might have it and who doesn't have great access to testing can do for that patient. And one important point is the therapy for coronavirus. Remember, there's still no specific therapy. So the care of these patients is still good supportive care. Therefore, The testing helps and it has very important implications for disease transmission and for preventing further spread. And yet for now, knowing the diagnosis in an individual patient probably wouldn't change their management all that much. What about the speculation that lopinavir, ritonavir might work, chloroquine might work? So Steve, I think that the need to develop specific therapies is critically important. And off-the-shelf therapies are incredibly attractive for medications where you already understand the safety profile, the dosimetry, and have a ready supply. And medicines like Kaletra, Lopinavir, Ritonavir, or Chloroquine are very attractive because we all have a lot of experience with them. There are some in vitro data suggesting that they may be active. So they're very attractive to study, but at this point it's premature to think that they actually work. Same thing with convalescent plasma or IVIG. There are a variety of therapies that make a lot of sense or have a rationale, but they need to be systematically assessed. I mean, some have even proposed since this virus binds the ACE2 receptor, can one use an ACE inhibitor? And I think that data need to be generated to see if those types of strategies make sense. I think we need to be very careful about presuming that they will work. As Eric already mentioned, the standard of care is best supportive care, oxygen, fluids, superinfection, and I think that we need to be very attentive to the best supportive care. But in terms of pathogen-specific therapy, there are not yet directive data. There are many studies going on looking at different potential approaches, and I think we all eagerly await those results. Lindsay, if I could ask a question, you have a patient who may or may not have coronavirus infection, you are working hard to try to get them tested. What do you do to prevent further transmission from this suspected case? Well, I think that at this point in time, the transmission dynamics seem similar to other respiratory viruses, such as influenza. 
And I think that precautions analogous to what we do for influenza seem appropriate. Obviously, as data are generated understanding transmission dynamics, this will be better informed. In the inpatient environment where the circumstance is more easily controlled because they're in the inpatient setting, one can set up respiratory precautions. In the outpatient setting, it gets more complicated as patients come in and out very freely given how busy outpatient clinics are. And again, pushing for proper respiratory etiquette because not only do we need to try and diminish transmission of coronavirus, we actually want to diminish transmission of flu, which is peaking right now in many parts of the U.S., and many other respiratory viruses. So I think there is an approach there that can help benefit more generally than just for the coronavirus. Let me give you a common scenario. A patient calls from home, calls you as his physician, and says, I've had a cough and fever, and I just came back from Italy. What do you do? I am extremely appreciative of the Infection Control Department and the Public Health Department for facilitating proper management of people at risk for contagious infections. But in general, if a patient calls and has what sounds like an upper respiratory infection, and they're not severely ill or at high risk for having complications. In general, it's best for patients to recover at home unless there is a need in terms of a more extensive evaluation. Now, much of testing, as you suggested earlier, is going to be driven by public health considerations. But commonly, patients are going to ask for testing. They're worried about their families, their coworkers, and they don't want to be vectors of transmission themselves. What do you tell those patients? Well, I think that the issue of testing, not all testing has to be done in a high-level testing center, such as a major academic center or the public health department. So as testing is scaled up, as we've seen with influenza, when my children get sick and I take them to the pediatrician, they can do a rapid flu test. There may be ways to do testing that's decentralized, and we have to see how testing unfolds over the next weeks to months. In the near term, it'll be centralized just because of the requirement to stand up testing de novo for a new pathogen and to make sure there's quality in the testing. But as we are able to test more freely, hopefully we'll be able to sort out who is infectious and who is shedding earlier so we're able to diminish transmission by social distancing. But that will depend on how the testing unfolds, how we understand transmission, how we understand who's infectious, data which hopefully will be generated over the weeks to come to guide our practice. We've talked about what the individual clinician should be doing. What should public authorities be doing to facilitate the kind of information flow and the kind of data that you're looking for? Well, Steve, I'm going to jump in there and reiterate what Lindsay said before. One of the crucial questions is how many people have disease, and we can't know that until there's more access to testing. There have been efforts announced last week and early this week to broaden that testing. There's some suggestion that the number of tests are going to remain limited, though, for a substantial amount of time. There are further liberalizations that the FDA could make that might permit testing to be broadened, and I think it's important to consider those. As far as other information that's useful, the government has been pretty good at releasing the number of infected individuals and the number of deaths due to COVID-19. However, the number of tests that have been performed 
they are no longer publicizing, at least as of today. That's a crucial number. Knowing how many tests they're doing and who they're testing really helps one understand the extent of disease and, in a granular way, the extent of disease within each community because it does spread locally. So I think there is more information that could help us understand what's going on and could help us care for individual patients. And along those lines, testing doesn't have to be a monolithic and a singular truthful test. One can have a testing strategy as we are standing up testing where preliminary or presumptive positives, as we've heard, can be done more liberally with confirmation being done more centrally to begin to understand the transmission dynamics in the community. And this is an important element of how we stand up the testing given the quality controls around the testing as they're being developed and deployed. But it's a solvable problem depending on the problem we want to address, which I think at this point is understanding how much transmission is going on in our communities to develop a strategy. Hopefully there's none, but I think we're all concerned given what we've seen in Northern California and Washington State that there may be more going on than we realize and we have to identify those transmission events to begin to block them. I'd add that, as Lindsay says, the performance characteristics of the test actually matter. And up until this time, it's been very important not to have false positive results because false positive results could fuel inappropriate responses and a lot of concern in the community. But we're probably past that now. It's much more important to be able to identify cases right now at the cost of a few incorrect tests. So that changes the strategy of testing. It means that we should really be broadening testing to a larger part of the community, people who are not so easily identifiable at risk, and when we do that, we will get more false positives, and yet, overall, we'll learn quite a bit more. One of the issues that's been raised are how few pediatric cases have been identified. Do you think children are immune or resistant to infection, or what do you think is going on there? I suspect it's far more likely that children are asymptomatic and therefore not being tested. So once again, this all comes down to testing strategies. I think the important question for children, because they seem relatively protected, at least against severe disease, is whether or not they are important for transmission of disease. We can't know that unless we know that they're infected and then do the shoe leather epidemiology required to figure out if they are passing on more infections. You're both talking about the need for more testing. Is there reason to bring in tests that are used in other parts of the world, the World Health Organization approved test? Can those be helpful here? So Steve, I think you raise an important point, which is how do you go to scale? With the sequence of this virus not being known until about seven weeks ago, testing has had to be developed and brought to scale and scale being hundreds of thousands to millions of tests being done over the last four, five, six weeks as the tests have been developed and, again, manufactured to scale. So I think that the testing should leverage what's available until we have a steady supply of high-quality tests. And whether the targets can be modified, that's easy enough to address. But I think it has more to do with kits being manufactured appropriately and being delivered to all the different labs that can use them or at academic centers or public health labs developing in-house tests that have appropriate quality control. 
I'd add that in China, we're seeing more and more hospitals doing serologic tests. It's difficult to know the performance characteristics of these tests. And clearly, though, this is going to be possible. This is probably going to make a bigger impact on the epidemiology of disease than it is on care of the individual patient, because it's likely that serologic markers will turn positive later than virologic markers, and therefore, it'll be a great way of diagnosing disease in retrospect, perhaps not so useful prospectively. And I think, Eric, you raised the very important point that testing is not one thing. Testing for nucleic acid is good for evidence of acute virus being present for some period of time until the body can clear it, but that's on the order of days to weeks. While a serologic or immune response should be induced a little bit later in illness and then more durable for a period of time, and that can be very useful in understanding who's been infected and hopefully can also allow understanding of immune correlates of protection And then issues around can you be reinfected, which are also questions that have been raised. Again, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.